reckon I've had a pretty good run. <laughs> oh, it's, it's amazing how many things like your life is like, you, have you ever thought of writing a book on yourself or like an autobiography? <laughs> Look, it, to be honest, yes. <laughs> but um, probably more funny things. You know, I, I worked um, in the building industry for a little while. I met some real characters there. And then I worked up in Thursday Island for a bit on the waterfront. I've met some very, very, yeah, some funny stories meeting different people. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Bushwalker's Diary. This is Season 2, Episode 7. I hope you guys have been enjoying my previous episodes here. Last, we recorded Tame Fox, and he shared a lot of wealth of knowledge with us, and I really enjoyed it. So today we have a, another very special guest with us. His name is Christopher Ward. I know Chris through Bankstown Bushwalking Club, same club I met Linda and Tim through. And I can't wait for you guys to hear Chris's story. I think I had a very moving experience interviewing Chris and also learned a lot about his adventurous life and his journey through Antarctica and many other parts of the world. So here we have Chris. Hello, Chris. How are you doing? Really good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Bushwalker's Diary. And uh, I'm really keen to hear your stories and about your experience and share that with our audience. So first of all, I would like to ask you if you can share something about yourself. Just tell us about yourself. Sure. Um, I suppose I'll touch on the what everybody avoids, the age. So I'm just shy of 60 years of age at the moment. And I find it hard to realize that, but that's the case. <laughs> um, I've had a fantastic life. Um, I truly believe... Uh, well, pr probably about 10 years ago, I was starting to feel very contented with myself. And I thought, you know, if things went really bad and if I was given a notice that I only had limited time to live, I don't think I'd be that unhappy because I've had a pretty good run. <laughs> I've had a great life. Uh, now I have three young children and that's given me a whole new chapter to my life, which is just fantastic. Um, a lot of climbing, a lot of canyoning, a lot of bushwalking, some crazy stuff, lots of near misses, lots of great victories and lots and lots of laughs and great friends. That's probably sums up my life in, in a very broad sense. Thank you, Chris. Uh, I met Chris uh, for our audience purpose. I would like to share through Bankstown Bushwalking Club. And we have few common friends, Chris, I think, uh, Linda, Tim. And I read that you, when you were in a scout, Tim Fox was uh, one of your mentors. Yes. Yeah, I think I was 12 or 13. And um, the scout troop that I was in told us that we were going to go abseiling uh, on the coming it was Thursday nights, midweek anyway. So I was a bit puzzled at abseiling, right? Well, this is obviously something to do with boats. I don't know how they're going to do some sort of boating 
activity out at Bass Hill. And <laughs> Tim turned up and uh, they set up a tiny little scaffold and taught us to abseil off this scaffold. So that was my introduction to abseiling and to Tim Fox. <laughs> Wow, you must be very stoked after the first experience because you have been doing that ever since. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty much hooked, actually, yeah, easily hooked. It was great. How and, was your experience in Scout then? Uh, sorry, how was my experience in Scouts? Yeah. It was great. Um, when I was in Younger Scouts, it wasn't too bad. Uh, but it really took off when I went to Venturers. So I was in Bass Hill Scouts and Tim was in Sefton, Sefton Venturers. And I went over to Sefton Venturers and Tim was briefly in the same Venture unit that I was. And it was just something else. We started canyoning, um, bush, lots of bushwalks, uh, lots of caving, uh, all, the, all the typical adventure sports people tend to do today but back in the, the late 90s and early 80s it was still very much on the on the evolution side of things um, I think the first few times I did Costral Canyon in Ventures we just wore um, cotton shorts and woolen jumpers and t-shirts and Dunlop volleys that was pretty much the norm we wow. made harnesses out of sizal rope just a little nappy sling. We abseiled on size or rope. And that was just the done thing. I remember coming across a group of um, slightly older guys than us in Claustral Canyon and they were wearing wetsuits, which was unheard of. And I remember us all laughing amongst each other, taking the mickey out of these guys, calling them soft. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was my adventurer days. Then... We, um, I went through to Rovers and that was 18 to 26. So I went through with all my, my adventurer mates and that's when we really started getting out doing great stuff. Uh, lots more canyons, lots of cross-country skiing and that's when I started climbing. So I went over to New Zealand and started mountaineering. Lots of rock climbing. We, um, bit of a regular occurrence was to go down and do the West Wall on the Three Sisters. In fact, I was invested as a rover. We have a very special ceremony. And I was 18 and at dusk, we were standing on top of the Third Sister overlooking the valleys. And that's where I was invested as a rover. That's um, my rover, my scouting days. Wow. Uh, thank you so much for sharing some of the information about you because the more I read it, I thought, oh, I can actually not just one episode of my podcast, I can do a whole series <laughs> on your life. <laughs> I've had a few chapters in my life. <laughs> and so many adventures. I, I'm very impressed and I'm so grateful to be able to interview you, I, I must say, because uh, the more I read about you, your life and i'm looking at um, the notes saying force baby in kelang at 11 uh, 16 year old oh Tell yes us about yeah. that <laughs> so um yeah again in the early days of canyoning um we didn't 
we just went out canyoning. So we wanted to do one of these big, uh, big canyons out at Canangra Walls. So we lined up, um, did a little, in fact, we did no research, to be honest. Uh, we went out, we looked at the map. We were going to do Kaylane Canyon. So an older friend of mine, another rover mate, Ian Shaw, he was three years my senior, one of Tim Fox's peers. We went out to do um, Kaylane Canyon. And I suppose there was a group of eight of us um, who were all around the 16 years of age. Uh, Ian was the eldest. He was 19. He was basically our guide, our leader in charge. And off we went to do Kaylang. Well, we probably stopped at too many um, pools for a swim and had too many jumping off rocks and playing around and yahooing. And we got down to the base of Murder and Gully just on twilight. So then we started up and we got up to, I guess, about two-thirds up Murder and Gully and it was just pitch black. And, well, this was towards winter also, so it was pretty cold. And we got to the the walls, um, Canangra walls. I can't remember exactly where it was. We got off track. Um, no torches, no bivy gear. Um I can't even remember carrying a pack. We must have had packs because we had to carry the ropes out, but certainly no overnight gear or prepared like people go now. And we came across this, uh, the cliff face, and we couldn't find the break in the cliff line to get up onto the plateau at Canagra Walls. So we stumbled around in the dark. Uh, it was pretty obvious that we were going to injure ourselves in the pitch black, so we decided time to sleep out so we all snuggled up to each other in a massive big pile like puppies lying on top of each other and we <laughs> spent the night yeah bivied out <laughs> um, wow. it sleeted that night it was pretty uncomfortable and in the morning we woke stretched ourselves got moving and we popped up to the top and just a short walk from there back to the car park and Back then, uh, the car park was right on the end of um, the walking track at Canagra Walls where the lookouts are. Um, so you could drive right up to the, the top there. Anyway, we, um, we stumbled out of the bush and onto the road and there was Les, our venture leader. He must have been in his mid-30s. He must have had a terrifying night worrying about where we were. But in Les's gruff and um, blasé manner, he jumped out of the bus and came walking over to us. And I still remember his words. He said, where have you bunch of bastards been? <laughs> so, but I know he was worried about us. So that was, that was my first forced bivy at 16. Wow. Uh, and I'm assuming because you were not planning, you didn't have extra food or a stove to cook anything. Oh, we had nothing. Wow. <laughs> Literally nothing. I think um, a few of us had packs to carry the ropes and the rest of us had nothing, just what we stood up in. But How did you find being 16 and that kind of experience when you didn't have any food to eat? Well, I'm, I'm assuming it wasn't a very warm night either. <laughs> How did you end up going back into Canning afterwards? 
I was just a huge adventure, real adventure. <laughs> but we also were a bit, um, oh, I suppose, you know, teenage boys uh, trying to out-tough each other. If you complain, you're a bit soft. I know we used to, um, we, we used to love climbing, just love it, rock climbing. And to train was, you were cheating if you were training. Um, you, you had to be a natural. You weren't allowed to um, go to gyms or you know, do chin-ups or anything like that. If you did that, you were deemed as cheating. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, we were a bit of a funny lot. And, <laughs> yeah, if you complained and whinged about any of these hardships, you would just had the crap bagged out of you for being soft. So <laughs> <laughs> we're all a, just a bunch of, well, almost yahoo um bit arrogant bit uh self-opinionated and lots of lots of um, light-hearted laughter and joking around constantly bantering with each other and it was just fantastic fun just really really good it's so good to hear this from me because i think it's a very different kind of crowd these days people go to the gym train for climbing outside it's such a different environment. How do you find that uh, climbing has changed over the years then? It's changed enormously. It is nothing like it used to be. It used to be climbing for the pure joy of climbing. And you never kept records of what you did. It was just getting out there with your friends, having great fun, um, always having a few beers afterwards at the local pubs and bagging each other, sandbagging and and mocking each other and having fun, joking. To go out now and and climb and then instantly race down and um, put down your your latest ascent on the crag and log log your records. It's all, well, back then we would, just class those sort of people as absolute wankers. <laughs> what are you doing, you tosser? Just get out there and climb. It's for fun. And, and, and as far as putting in bolts, that was just just uh, frowned upon beyond belief. Uh, if, you, if you didn't have the guts and the mental fortitude to do 30-foot uh, runouts and crazy stuff like that, then you shouldn't have been climbing. You were just a bit weak having to put bolts everywhere. So wow, it's changed big time. So, did you do more trad back then? Then without bolts, <laughs> it it was nothing but trad. <laughs> <laughs> bolts yeah. didn't exist. Sport climbing didn't exist. This was rock climbing. <laughs> Pure rock climbing reminds me of all the pioneers in Yosemite. After talking to you now, <laughs> <laughs> well, we used to. Um, oh, my peers, the guys that taught me how to climb. They used to carry, um, they made some of their protection out of machine nuts. Uh, it, you couldn't, you didn't buy a lot of this stuff. So they had uh, 24 mil um, machine nuts and they drilled the centre out and, and put climbing rope through it. And that, that's what they used for, for, for protection. And pitons, uh, Steve, my other climbing mate, he had just uh, kilos of pitons he used to use. and natural protection carrying around um, rocks and 
and pebbles to jam in cracks to to put pro in. Really? Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was carrying um, the face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you'd look around and find something. But but as as um, climbing evolved, uh, things got better and better. Um, bought a set of hexes and I thought I was pretty cool with a, a bunch of hexes and then these great things called friends came along and what we call cams these days but friends were the, the people that first made them and we were just gobsmacked they were just fantastic and I remember my sister bought me a number four friend for my might have been 18th birthday cost a huge sum of 80 bucks and I just thought it was fantastic. I was forever in my sister's debt for buying me this super expensive high-tech bit of climbing gear. And nice. <laughs> now, now you see people with nothing but cams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it costs a lot uh, these days, but it weighs nothing. I think they're getting lighter and lighter and stronger and stronger. They are, yeah, definitely. Well, and apart from um, climbing and canyoning, I also see you do a lot of multi-day hiking. Yeah, how, yeah. How, how do you like hiking? What kind of hikes do you do? Oh, that's um, pretty much anything. I can enjoy any sort of outing. Uh, I particularly enjoy bushwalking in the rain. Just love it. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, really, really nice. Um, when... Are we talking about a, a multi-day pack hike in the rain or just a day hike? Uh, multi-day hike in the rain is a bit, bit yucky, but uh, <laughs> certainly a weekend in, in rainy, it's lovely. Don't mind that at all. It's nice. I'm assuming um, it's in summer, not winter, <laughs> in cold. Oh, no, no, winter's, winter's good. Yeah. Hmm. Love that... Um, that misty, foggy rain, almost that Scottish Highlands sort of rain. Cold, um, fog rolling in, misty rain. Yeah, I love that sort of stuff. Oh, true, true. Because we we did Butterbox last weekend uh, on Saturday and the clouds were coming in and out and you can see rolling clouds over the hills around you and it just changes the scenery every few minutes. Oh, it's gorgeous. Really cool. Just love it. Yeah. I, no. in the, uh, I think I might have been 18 or 19, possibly 18. Uh, four, another three of my um, scouting mates, my rover mates, we went over to New Zealand for two months. And our goal was to try and do a bushwalk in every one of their national parks. So we started in the, the top of the North Island and we hitched and caught buses from the north of the North Island to the south of the Southern Island. And I think we just about got a bushwalk or a tramp, as the Kiwis call it, a tramp in every one of the national parks. So two months of just hitching and bushwalking, it was great. And, and that was a really varied um, terrain and experience of bushwalking over there. It's quite different than Australia, isn't it? Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. 
and I've done a tiny, a little bit of day bushwalks in the Flinders Ranges, um, like everybody else does, the Overland Track down in Tassie, but lots of bushwalks around Blue Mountains and down the Snowy Mountains. And I see you uh, spent a whole year in Torres Strait when you were 24. Yes. Tell me about that. <laughs> that was another little chapter. Uh, I started off with a, it was supposed to be a trip around Australia in, and we're going to do it in two months. So I had a, a Toyota Land Cruiser, an old looking ute, which I still have. And this was back in, um, must've been in the mid eighties, I suppose, mid to late eighties. And I teamed up with this bloke I knew, well, he was referred to me, I uh, didn't know him that well, but we went up to Cape York uh, for a four wheel drive trip. And we were sitting in the, the canteen at Bamaga, it's a little town right on the tip of Cape York. And this guy is saying, here we are, Chris, we've made it. End of Australia. <laughs> and wild country, we've finally gotten here. And, rah, rah, rah. and he was patting himself on the back for enduring hardships and, and we've been at the edge of civilization. And I looked over and um, a guy sitting at a table across from us, uh, I went to TAFE with him when I did my apprenticeship. So I called out to him and he saw me and came over and we started chatting and he was of Aboriginal descent and he'd gotten a job up there working for the Island Industries Board. And the conversation went on and uh, we stayed well and truly into the night and he introduced me to all the locals and we had a fantastic time. Next day, uh, he took us around and showed us the sites, introduced us to more people. And, and he said, are you interested in doing some work up here? Oh, I'd love to. Um, we're running out of money. Uh, we're planning on going around Australia. And uh, I think he tried to tee up some work. Unfortunately, the, the work fell through. They didn't get the materials in time. Uh, so I'm a carpenter, by the way, so it was carpentry work. Mm -hmm. And I left my details with the Island Industries Board. Uh, I, we spent the rest of our two months holiday um, fishing, uh, spear fishing and shooting at the mouth of the Jardine River, just living off the land for a month or so, a month and a half. Then went back down to Sydney. I was just getting back into the swing of things. And I got a phone call from somebody in the Island Industries Board. And they said, uh, Chris, we've got a full time job up here for you. Uh, vacancies come available. If you can get yourself up here in two weeks before the wet season sets in, we've got a, a year's job for you. So I made a spur of the moment decision and quit my job down here and charged up to Thursday Island and spent the next year living up there with the Islanders. Wow. Uh, yeah, I was um, young, 24 year old, um, hadn't spent a lot of time out of home. In fact, I think it was the first time I'd been out of home, like living out of home. And uh, there I was green as grass, uh, naive beyond belief. And the um, accountant that was working for the Island Industries Board, he was sort of had a fair sway in employing me. 
he, in hindsight, what he'd done, he was looking after me and he billeted me with an Islander family. So there was a little room in the front of this very big old-fashioned Queenslander house and Bobby was the Islander guy's name. Bobby was one of the, the elders in the community, very well respected. He and his wife couldn't have kids, so they, adopt, they had adopted their four kids. And um, the accountant chap asked Bobby if he wouldn't mind an extra white fella <laughs> as a son. <laughs> so Bobby just adopted me. And it was sort of known around the Islander community that I was part of Bobby's family. And it was just wonderful, just gorgeous. Uh, every weekend we used to go fishing. Uh, once a month we'd go um, hunting. There was deer over on Prince of Wales Island. So we'd go over and hunt for deer. And it was a year of living off the land on a tropical island and being part of um, Torres Strait Islander culture and part of Bobby's family. Wow, that sounds a very warm, heartwarming experience and looks like you were deep in the cultural side of it. Do you still feel like connected to the place after spending a year there? Yeah, it's funny. Um, when the last week that I was working up there and getting ready to leave, Bobby was getting quite teary and quite emotional and he, uh, he gave me um, some nuts to eat. He crushed it up and said, Igris, you have this, eat this up. And so I ate it and he said, that be Wong Ai nut. Um, said, now your heart always belongs in Torres Straits. Uh, once you've eaten the Wong Ai nut, you will always come back. Oh, that's so, so sweet. Yeah, look, I'm actually getting quite teary now because in um, uh, 2002, uh, Michelle and I, we travelled back up there and caught the ferry across to the Thursday Island. And um, Bobby didn't have the phone on and I knew he must be getting quite old at that stage. So just wandering around the island asking uh, where Bobby Lewin is living and they pointed me towards where his house was and I remember knocking on the door and this the door opened up and this big islander fellow looked at me and he just you could see he almost burst into tears he just put his arms out and said, Chris <laughs> and <gave laughs> me the biggest hug and uh, yeah, we've kept in touch ever since, but but sadly he died about four years ago now. But I still keep in touch with uh, Bobby's uh, other adopted uh, uh, other adopted children. So we keep in touch through Facebook. Uh, still, still keep in touch with what everything everything's happening up on CI. Thank you for sharing that, Chris. Very, very moving experience. I feel like I'm seeing your world through your eyes thanks to your your stories and sharing oh, this with me. getting quite chucked up i don't think i've ever ex given that story to anybody <laughs> not in such <laughs> a short context <laughs> but yeah they, they were just beautiful memories just wonderful and i feel like it was a very spontaneous life-changing decision you made um yeah quite quite brave 
leaving your job and going to unknown and not knowing what you're up for. That was oh. quite <laughs> My life's full of moments like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting the feel of it now. <laughs> yeah, look, I very, very nearly became a uh, professional alpine guide at one stage. I, huh. I, Tell I, us I did, more about that. Uh, I did quite a bit of climbing over in New Zealand. Um, in the in the eighties, yeah, in the eighties, and I used to go over there uh, two months every year to go climbing around Mount Cook and Mount Aspiring. So mountaineering, you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, mountaineering, yes. And um, second or third, probably the third uh, trip that I was over there, uh, they were running a course. Had to pay for it, but it was to get your mountaineer, your um, guiding qualifications through Alpine Guides at Mount Cook. And uh, yeah, it was something like a six month course. And you were, it would have uh, ended up having um, UIAA accreditation, like a world world-recognised qualifications in mountain guiding. So I was very much going to sign up for it and um, thought, no, it would probably be more sensible to um, finish off my apprenticeship and finish off my uh, my TAFE studies. But mm -hmm. the temptation was there. <laughs> <laughs> And also, I see, uh, is there any connection between mountaineering experience and going to Antarctica? I have to admit, not many people I meet have been there and not <laughs> just once, but you've been there like four summer season you spent in Antarctica. That's that's mind-blowing. I'm really looking forward to hear about that, more about that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, strange enough, there's probably more connection uh, between Torres Straits and Antarctica than what there is mountaineering in New Zealand. Uh, in the one or two years before I went to Torres Straits, I, I was, was at TAFE and one of the guys was telling me about working in Antarctica. He'd seen an advertisement for it and he, uh, he knew a lot more about it than what I did. So I asked him all about it and he gave me a, uh, I think he brought the clipping out of the newspaper in for me. So um, I applied for the job, um, rode away to the Antarctic Division, applied for the job. I got this massive uh, questionnaire application form and filled it in uh, as best I could. And what became very obvious was that I had nowhere near the experience that was required for the job, plus I was still doing my apprenticeship. But the good thing about it was that I got to see what the application form required, what they were looking for. And one of the things that they were looking for was working in a remote area, a remote location. So although um, the decision to go to Torres Straits to work up there was purely because I'd been up there and I wanted to go back up there and work, and the opportunity came up, but working up there put me in very good um, good uh, frame for getting a, a pro getting a job 
down in Antarctica. So it was the stepping stone of working in the isolated Torres Straits that uh, gave me a good head start in getting the job in Antarctica. And I see that you did it with Australian government. What kind of work were you doing in Antarctica? I went down as a carpenter. Really? Yeah. What were yep. you doing in Antarctica? <laughs> well, as somebody pointed out to me, humans need three things to live for. Live uh, three things to to humans need three things to survive. Yeah. They need love. I'm not a very lovable person. <laughs> they need food and i'm an average sort of cook and they need shelter and that's something that i can do as a carpenter so nice that's yeah. a very interesting way to see life i like that i will remember that yeah so um i went down in 1988 was the first uh, tour that i did back then it was um really remote uh, they didn't have really good satellite connectivity for the rest of the world uh, we used to type out these little um, little messages on bits of paper and they you were allowed so many messages a week and you'd write it out freehand on bits of paper give it to the comms people the, the communications people and they type away on telexes and send the message back to Australian Antarctic Division, then they'd type them up and put them in an envelope and post them off to your loved ones on the mainland in Australia. They, and how long do you think that message came across, like a few days, weeks? Oh, you'd get, you'd get a message out in, in a couple of um, two, three days, two, three days it took. Hmm. But you, know, you can't really say much in a tech typed up message I think you're only allowed uh, like a dozen words or something like that they, wow. they yeah they had these crazy codes um I remember one was called uh WYSIWYG I think it was um and that was something like love and kisses I uh, hope you're all well or something like that so if and they gave you a code book and they gave your people at home your family a code book oh, wow um, uh, believe me, they were pretty rubbish because you'd get, as my mum said, you'd get a message and it'd have WYSIWYG, Wazzy, blah, 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 and all these crazy codes and then you'd have to look through and decode it and it, it meant nothing because it wasn't the person, you could get no personality out of it. It was just rubbish, to be honest. <laughs> it's, it's like from James Bond or a spy movie, seems like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just in case somebody else is listening, you have to make sure. <laughs> oh, look, it was, it was really funny back in the 80s, working down there. In fact, it was wonderful because um, all correspondence that came from the Antarctic Division, that came as um, oh, I know that professional isn't the word, but it become as genuine um, federal government communication because they'd come in brown folders with on Her Majesty's service or something like that. And it'd be, uh, and everything had come, that was very official, very federal government. I remember signing a, a contract or a declaration um, 
when I first was employed by them. And it was uh, under the Federal Secrecies Act, you are required to not to talk to here, not to talk to there. And anything you see here or say belongs to the Australian government and any photos you take belong to the Australian government. And it really was like they were sending you on a spy mission. It was just ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I remember um, leaving, kissing mum goodbye and saying goodbye to her at the airport jumping on the plane and everything was everything was paid for. As soon as you walked out the door, uh, the Australian government picked up the tab on everything. Oh, nice. And and this this was in the eighties. You hopped on a plane, um, flew down to Melbourne and you walked out of the airport and in the foyer there was do you remember the, the Z cars, the Commonwealth cars that drive politicians around? I might have to Google that. Yeah, they used to have a fleet of Commonwealth cars. That fleet has been reduced dramatically. And now that you just see the white cars driving around the politicians, but they're of a special mm -hmm. fleet. And they used to have license plates beginning with a red Z, hence they call them Z cars. But they were the same cars and the same drivers that used to drive the politicians around. And it was reserved exclusively for federal employees. So because we were federal employees, I walked out of the airport at um, Melbourne, a young 25, 26 year old. And there was a man in a suit and he took my bags and said, this way, sir, and walked me out to a Z car and popped me in the Z car and we drove off to the hotel in Melbourne. So I thought no. I was the business. <laughs> <laughs> You must feel so cool. I oh, cool wasn't, cool wasn't the word for it. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> Felt like Did James Bond and uh, <laughs> a diplomat, everything rolled together. <laughs> Did you tell your friends once you come home and your family about all that? <laughs> I never stopped talking about it. <laughs> I wouldn't either if I were you. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking at it. I, go I quickly Google that. Uh, it looks like a luxurious vehicle. They are. <laughs> they were the best. <laughs> nice, nice. Oh, what a what a fantastic experience. But being away, how long would you be gone to Antarctica for in each time, like the whole summer? Between six months and eight months. Wow. And how, how did you find that kind of experience? Because not many people have those kind of experiences like for me I live in the same city have my friends there day job I I would like you to explain a little bit so people like me can relate to that a little bit and understand what goes on in a life like that living down it, it's changed considerably from the 80s to um, this century now but okay. back in the 80s, it was exceptionally isolated. As I was saying, the only, way, any, only form of communications were these telexes. And I think you're allowed um, a little radio message uh, once a month. And that, that would, you'd have to pay for that. And they were quite expensive. And it was really, real rubbish connection. It was really, really bad. And you'd have to tee up with your people back home to be sitting by the phone at a certain time. And there was a massive delay 
you would say something and then you know, two or three seconds later, they'd get the message and then they'd respond back to you and it'd be another two or three seconds afterwards. So you're constantly talking over the top of each other or this huge pause in between. Uh, in the 80s, we still had uh, dog teams down there. So they had huskies and sleds. Uh, yeah, it was just magic, just wonderful and very isolated. I think I was down there when the, the Iraq war broke out, when Iraq invaded Kuwait. Now, I remember everybody um, in the station coming in to hear this important announcement. We were sitting all around the radio. Uh, mm -hmm. There's about 30 or 40 of us and we're all listening. And I remember Bob Hawkes saying that uh, we are at war and we're, we're off to war with the US and um, fighting against Saddam Hussein. And it was, it was quite, um, quite an unusual feeling knowing that the rest of the world was going to war and we were on this tiny little outpost at the end of the world, so removed from everything. That, wow. that, was, that was quite, quite daunting and quite an unusual feeling. Did you feel like homesick in any of these trips or felt like, oh, what am I doing here? <laughs> little bit from time to time but there was just too much happening it, it yeah. was yeah it was like it was like being on another planet going down there um just so completely different a different environment um it was 24 hours sunshine when when i first arrived there and the sun wouldn't rise and set it just used to do circles in the sky um strange element strange animals no trees, no grass, no moss, nothing, just ice and rock. And Very different world, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it really is. And then as summer started deteriorating and we started getting night, um, because they're the auroras. So the night sky was lit up with these massive auroras at the night time. Wow. So, uh, do you see a lot of different kind of colours? Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. Uh, greens, <laughs> reds, um, yellow, blues. Wow. A, a, a diesel mechanic once described it to me. I hadn't seen one at this stage. And he goes, Wardy, I'll describe what an Aurora looks like to you. I said, yeah, tell me. <laughs> Imagine God getting a 44-gallon drum and tipping his heavenly 44-gallon drum of petrol out into the sky and then tossing a match into it. That's what an Aurora <laughs> looks like. <laughs> wow. And that's one way to look at it. <laughs> As only a diesel mechanic could describe. <laughs> but it was a good description. <laughs> I've only seen green ones in Alaska and I was very lucky. I experienced it a few times, but I'm still keen to see other colours. Mm -hmm. It's a very magical feeling, isn't it? It's almost frightening. It's, uh, they get so powerful. They're huge. Very, very... Um, awe-inspiring that's for sure I, I felt like it was so majestic and yeah it's a it's a different feeling it's hard to describe to people if you they haven't experienced it i feel like i was mesmerized and yeah you forget about everything else and especially when the light moves as well oh gosh yeah but well, we were um morrison station is right on the aurora 
like they have a a band where most aurora activity happens and mm -hmm. more sensations right in that band and um like a music I'm, band pardon are you talking about band you mean oh, no 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 it's like a how you have latitude and longitudinal bands oh right we're, we're kind of <laughs> yep sorry <laughs> it's on a um um a band of if you want to see an aurora, go to Mawson. That's where they happen. So they happen in these bands around the world. And mm. Mawson's under one of these bands. I think they call it auroral, not cusp. That's another word they use for it. But anyway, a lot of people see auroras um, on the horizon or one part of the sky. But at mm -hmm. Mawson, you see them go from one end of the sky right across the sky to the other horizon. So the entire sky is dancing. Wow. When that was, that was almost frightening to see the sky on fire. And it's as my diesel mechanic mate described. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I'm still dazzled after hearing of this aurora experience from your trip because I still uh, remember what I felt when I first saw it. It was from the top of the sky. Mm. It was falling all around like an umbrella. It's like umbrella is opening. Wow. Yeah. Look, you're, I, lucky. you're lucky to see them. <laughs> yeah, and it was very random. We didn't go look for it. We were just driving at night and the star, uh, sky started changing. And we were like, hmm, what is that? Got out of the car in the night and it was just magical. It is magical, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And uh, I also see you left your work and traveled the world, climbing, hiking in 2001. How did that took place? Well, my wife, Michelle, she always wanted to do a round-the-world trip wanted to go backpacking so she was she was working for SOCOG the Olympic Games people the Sydney organizing committee for Olympic Games when the Olympic Games finished up so did her job and she said okay well when the games finish up could you wind up your business because I had a little building business at the time I was mm -hmm. building pole homes and we decided that we'd, I'd wind up my business, she'd finish with SOCOG, and we would travel the world. So we bought a round-the-world ticket. Mm -hmm. uh, we started off uh, going to New Zealand to do some mountaineering. I um, invited a friend of mine, Ian, actually, the guy I divvied with in Canangra Walls, invited uh, him to come with us, and we did some mountaineering at Mount Cook some climbing um, it was to get Michelle used to um, glacial travel and ice climbing because one of the trips that we wanted to do was down to the Antarctic Peninsula so we stopped off and did um, maybe a month of climbing in New Zealand then we went to South America we went to Argentina and Chile and we we did quite a bit of um, hiking around uh, Torres del Paine, uh, Mount Fitzroy, uh, up in the, the desert regions, the dry desert 
regions of Argentina, or I think it's Chile, and then went down to Tierra del Fuego, which is on the southern end of uh, Argentina, the, the southern tip. And we had pre-booked a trip to the Antarctic Peninsula. And Michelle had found out that this one particular trip that was being run by uh, Greg Mortimer, he's the, uh, the Australian guy who'd first climbed, the first Australian guy who'd climbed Everest. He had yeah. a little Antarctic um, tourism company and he wanted to do a crossing of South Georgia. It was retracing Ernest Shackleton's uh, footsteps. Ernest Shackleton was one of the early heroic explorers of Antarctica. So we went down, we jumped on the ship. Um, we'd been backpacking probably three or four months at that stage. So we were pretty, um, pretty fit, pretty battled hardened. And we got on this ship with um, lawyers and doctors and they're all either retirement age or just shy of retirement age. And we were these young bum backpackers <laughs> and uh, yeah, off we went. And we're, we're a bit of a novelty to them. Anyway, there was a, five other um, lawyers and doctors that were going to do this trip across South Georgia, along with Greg Mortimer and a fellow called Colin Monteith. They were the guides, the, the fellows that were going to run it. And um, yeah, we did the crossing and it was fantastic. Um, after, after we did the crossing, uh, Michelle, my wife, she's quite light in stature and very, very uh, prim and proper, very feminine, I suppose. Um, dresses nicely. Um, tends to, she, back then, she tended to wear white um, shirts when she went bushwalking. And mm -hmm. after we did the hike, uh, all these other guys that did the crossing with us, they got drunk. We all got madly drunk that night when we uh, finished the crossing and got back on the ship. Uh, <laughs> They fessed up and they were saying, oh, when we first saw Michelle, we thought, oh, my God, what have we got here? This princess, she's going to be a handful. Anyway, um, Michelle ended up carrying one of their packs. <laughs> the, guy, <laughs> the guys fell down in a heap, are really struggling because Michelle and I had been hiking for, you know, three, four months. We were, we were hot to trot, good to go, and Michelle emptied out one of these guys' packs and put all this all his gear into her pack and not put him a hand to get across. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was pretty good. <laughs> that's, that's that's so hilarious and interesting. How long did you guys take to do the expedition? Uh, I think it was we did the crossing, the actual crossing of South Georgia in three days. But we, we did a lot of um, touring around. We went up and down the Antarctic Peninsula. Uh, we stopped off at a few mountains to go climbing. Um, I got an idea we were down, down on, the, on, the, on the ship for a bit over a month. Wow. Yeah, cost us a and bomb. <laughs> is, is it like um, hard to do climbing in Antarctica in the peninsula because... 
It's so cold. Like, what kind of gear did you have to carry even? I I was lucky because I'd been working in Antarctica before. So I, I pretty much um, knew what the weather was going to be like and what it could do. So I didn't have any real problem. Um, what about Michelle? How did you, she find it? Oh, she did. She did incredibly well. She did really, really well. Um, but but we worked as a pretty good team. Uh, we've oh, been doing. We we've, we've done a lot of stuff together, and we've got our roles almost um, routine now. Like she does, takes care of certain things, and I take care of other things, and we work wonderfully together. That is very wonderful. And it seems like you guys share a lot of your hobbies, outdoor nature. Yeah, actually, I'll tell you a tiny little story. Yeah, I'm started talking now. You won't be able to shut me up. <laughs> We're out on the um, oh, one of the glaciers that we cross uh, to do the crossing of South Georgia. We'll camp down for the night. And... Um, the, oh, it's the first night out. We had the doctor. We had the doctor in our in our tent. So there was three in, in our tent, and the other guys were obviously in other tents. But the doctor, um, he was really in agony. It didn't take long for him to because it was a it was a pretty hard pace that we pushed, and it was woeful conditions, absolutely horrendous. It was blowing a gale, low visibility, really really difficult. And he was exhausted on the first day. So he, he dropped on his um, sleeping bag and took two tablets and went to sleep. Anyway, it was only about 15 minutes later, he started snoring. And Michelle, she has, she's legendary for hating snorers. All across <laughs> the world, she's beaten up snorers and you know, people in huts, she's woken them up. So this guy was snoring like something out of this world. So she's hitting him and pushing him and we're rolling him over. We managed to roll him over onto his stomach. And his face was down on the airbed, on the mat. He's going to either die, suffocate himself, or he'll stop snoring. So anyway, <laughs> the vibrations of him snoring were still coming through the, his mat. And then Michelle and I started tearing up bits of toilet paper and we're wetting it and stuffing it in our ears, trying to get to sleep. We had a woeful night's sleep. Anyway, next morning, this bugger, he wakes up. Tommy's name was, and he goes, oh, I had a fantastic morning. Michelle was just about to kill him with an ice axe. <laughs> anyway. Um, so after all the rolling, he didn't wake up at all. No, no, he was out to it. So um, the next night, we were getting ready to bed down, and uh, Tom, what did you take last night? He said, oh, they're muscle relaxant tablets. They just knock you out. They're really, really good. And Michelle grabbed him by, by his clothing and says, whatever you got, we want half. <laughs> <laughs> so, he said, oh. so he gave us one of the tablets. <laughs> he took one and Michelle and I shared the other one. <laughs> oh, I love, love those. It almost reminds your camping story. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a friend who snores very loud. I almost offered him to share my tent and then he said, look, I snore. I'm like, okay, then I'm not going to share my tent with you. 
Oh, this this wasn't snoring. This was something not for this planet. He was just unbelievable. <laughs> like a truck running in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, of course, he was a doctor. He had access to all sorts of drugs. So I don't know what he had, but to it, only half a quarter of the dosage that he took knocked us out. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Oh, I'm very curious to hear more Miss Misha's story as well. <laughs> it looks like she's great. <laughs> she, she sounds definitely sound like a legend to me now. <laughs> I reckon she is. <laughs> yeah, I, oh my god, I feel like I can just talk and talk with you about all these stories. I've got a few more things before sure. I wrap up. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm not delaying your dinner. <laughs> no, no, I've eaten. I'm, I'm good to go. <laughs> oh, good, good. Uh, I see that you became a region commissioner for adventure activities in Scout in 2019. Mm -hmm. So you must be doing a lot of work with the Scouts. Tell us a bit about your experience with them. Well, uh, I turned 26, and that was the end of my Rover day. So from Rovers, we all left scouting and we didn't go back. So we all, all my friends went off. We just started um, climbing together and just doing the stuff that we normally did, just no longer in scouts. And then my twin girls came home from kindergarten, I think it was, or first, first class. And they said, Daddy, um, some of the kids at school in our class go to Joey's. Can, can we join Joey's? And I've got to admit, I didn't know what Joey's was and I sort of dismissed it. And the next night they came back, Daddy, we really want to go to Joey's. So I said, all right, well, what are they? What do they do? <laughs> and they said, oh, they meet down at the scout hall. Said, oh, are they scouts? And I said, well, find out a bit more about it and um, let me know. So the following day they came home and they said, they're Joey scouts and they, they're younger than cubs, and they meet down at the scout hall down by the river. So I thought, oh, all right, well, we'll go down and I'll find out about it. So I literally drove down that night, and, and they said they meet Monday night. So I drove down on a Monday night, got out of the car, walked in unannounced, um, walked in through the door, and the group leader and a few other leaders were there and the, the kids really loved it. My twin daughters loved it. And they did such a big con job and sale job on me that I walked out eventually leader. So wow. that was, they <laughs> signed me up as the leader for the 14 to 18 year olds. Um, had, a, had three years of great success. They went from six kids up to 36 kids. And wow. I was taking them on canyoning trips, bushwalks, stuff that they had never done before. And then I had a bit of a uh, falling out with the two group leaders there. Um, sadly, it happens uh, more than what it should. So I decided, well, this is no longer for me. I quit. And the people at region, so you have a, a, a group which is just one little scout hall, then they go up in hierarchy. And the region level is what they call South Met region, and it covers all the southwest section of Sydney from uh, Rose Bay 
Bondi all the way down to the Royal National Park and out to just shy of Liverpool. So it in South Met region encompasses that. And they said, we don't want you to quit. Um, you're too much of an asset for us. Would you consider becoming a region activities leader? I said, okay, um, sure. What do I do? And they said, oh, no, you'll be right. Um, just the way you go. So um, after about three weeks, I rang up again. I said, well, you know, who do I report to? What do I do? And they said, well, you're the new commissioner. It's your job <laughs> to recruit your team and build your activities team to serve uh, South Met region. So they, again, they suckered me in. <laughs> so uh, now I've got a little team of, well, on the books, there's 63 people that have volunteered to be on the team. And uh, so I managed to recruit them all, but realistically, I've probably got about uh, 12, maybe 20 uh, active leaders and we organize all the adventurous activities for the region for all the kids i think there's about two and a half thousand kids in the south Bent region wow and i look after all the abseiling and canyoning and um other adventurous activities kayaking canoeing and are these volunteers parents or just anyone who is interested to help some are parents, some are um, people who, a lot of them are people that their kids have gone through Scout Movement and they've stayed on because they, they enjoy helping out kids. A lot of wonderful people, absolutely fantastic people. It's all voluntary. And the whole idea, it's um, Scouting has, uh, to use terminology that the movement used, they concentrate on the whole child, the whole individual's development. And what they regard as youth members are kids from five years of age right through, well, actually six. Six, they start off in Joey's and they can go right through to 26 when they leave Rovers. So it's the, the whole development uh, and it's a journey that a, a six-year-old child can do right through till they're 26. And when they talk about the whole of the child, they talk about their spiritual development, their character development, their physical development, their uh, intellectual development, and their civic development. And that's what scouting aims at. Uh, it's, and interestingly enough, um, it's the world's largest uh, non-formal education system. And I think currently there's 40 million scouts in the world. That's so still a big yeah. movement. So when you say it's the largest around the world within Australia or? No, um, worldwide, worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and Fantastic, actually, the way you described how it is, it caters to all sides of a development. In it a does, kid. yes. Yeah. And one of the big things that they've always done, um, <laughs> except uh, scouting, it was started in 19, I shouldn't know, 1907 or something like that. 
by a fellow called Baden Powell, and he took um, gang kids out of London and took them out into the outdoors and taught them survival tech tactics and camping and uh, living off the land. And that was his way of um, giving these kids uh, something to live for and to improve their character. Uh, and that was developed back in 1907. And now these days we call it experiential learning. And that's where uh, people learn through experiences. And that's like um, throwing a challenge at someone. And it's a real hard uh, challenge and they, they overcome the challenge and then, then they've learned something about their character through that challenge, experiential learning. And it's interesting, um, scouting went into a little bit of a decline or has been on a slow decline. And it was described to me by somebody in the scout movement as we started the, the game of experiential learning and now schools and Duke of Edinburgh and other organisations are doing better than our game, even though we, we invented it. So scouts have just over the past five years, scouts in Australia have done a really major restructuring and gone back to their basic roots where they came from. And funny, a lot of people are saying, oh, it's the new program, but all they've done is press the reset button and gone back to um, more outdoors focused. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. That's, that's... Is that because the schools are doing rest of it, so they just want to do what they used to do? Is yeah, that the reason? See, <clears throat> what scouts um, traditionally offered, now they're in competition with weekend sports such as soccer and netball and all these other activities. When mm -hmm. scouting was first invented, there was nothing like that. Nothing existed. Kids just went to school came home, worked, um, ran amok on the weekend, and then went back to school. Uh, now there's, they can do piano lessons, they can do soccer, they can do um, gymnastics. There's countless other things on offer for kids. So that has taken a lot of what used to be uh, traditional uh, kids going to scouts. And schools are now offering Duke of Edinburgh uh, programs and the expensive schools have got cadets. So they're all things that scouting traditionally does, but um, there's just more competition to offer that, that experience now. As I said, it's still, it's still a big movement, still probably the biggest movement, um, possibly the biggest movement in Australia. I know there's, they said in just, the South Met region, there's two and a half thousand kids. That, that's a big number. Yeah, it's true. And do the, do the kids have to pay for this scouting? Because they I'm do. not from Australia. That's yeah, they do have to pay. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of things, um, because we have to run insurance programs, if you've got two and a half thousand kids in just one region in Sydney, there's a mm -hmm. big overhead. There's office um, 
behind the scenes staff. There's IT people running it. Oh gosh, um, it's probably wow. 20 to 30 permanent employees for New South Wales um, Scouts. And then there's the national office. So that there's probably another you know, 30 odd people employed there. And then there's administrative costs, um, insurances, training fees. Uh, it, it adds up. Wow. That's good to hear the background of it because I hang out with some people canning and they help out with the, there's some of them are scout leaders or. Oh, really? Yeah. David it, Mason. Ah, yes. <laughs> I know David <laughs> Mason. <laughs> oh, do you know David? <laughs> he attended, I, I was running some vertical rescue courses and he attended one of the courses. Yeah, I know David really, really well. His, uh, his daughter, Charlotte. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, oh, I, know, I know them. Oh, nice. And Alex Mothcare, he helps out as well, I think. Um, Alex, possibly. I, I, the name doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, so, so I end up sometime seeing uh, Venture or the one a bit older than Rovers. Rovers, um, yes, the Rovers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually did Absil two weekends ago. They were both Rovers, and I was like, hmm. So I hear a lot of these words and <laughs> and meet people from those groups. So um, now I'm really getting a bit more deeper understanding of what all those things mean. <laughs> Next time you see David, you can tell him that you got uh, Scouting 101 from Chris Ward. <laughs> <laughs> I sure will. <laughs> sounds, sounds great. Uh, so you, you said you became stay-at-home dad at 49. Yeah, what, sure what, did. Yeah. What made you do that? Um, I actually started staying at home uh, 11 years ago now. Yeah, so the twins came along and um, it was, they, they were born at 29 weeks, very, very premature. Um, big, big shake up for Michelle and I, uh, a lot of stress involved. We thought we were going to lose them at one stage. Um, yeah, they were where most little babies are born into uh, a birthing room with a midwife and maybe a doctor and nice music in the background. The twins were born into a room with 20 people on standby in the room. It was, uh, yeah, um, pediatricians, um, neonatal emergency transfer teams. It was, it was a big event. <laughs> so uh, there was a fair bit of trauma and a lot of um, stress when they came along. And um, Michelle was having a little bit of um a bit of strife looking after them. So uh, we decided to share it around. Michelle looked after them for the first 10 months and then I, I took over after that. And then three years after the twins were born, Tan came along. <laughs> and Michelle went back to staying at home and I went back to work. And 
must have been about a year or maybe 10 months. It was very similar age, actually. At Patrick's, the people that I was working for were offering uh, voluntary redundancies. And Michelle and I were contemplating me um, staying home again, doing, doing the role swap what we did before. Mm -hmm. So it just worked out perfectly. Um, I took a, a redundancy handout from Patrick's and stayed home to look after the kids. Michelle went back to work. And that's been the status quo ever since. Wow, I'm pretty impressed because I come from India and it's a very male-dominating society, I find. So hearing your story is quite inspiring, actually. <laughs> well, it's, it's amazing, you know, even, even now in modern Australia where we're supposed to be very cosmopolitan and accepting and um, all-inclusive, I copped a fair bit of... Uh, you know, it was there, the prejudice about staying at home and looking after the kids from all ages as well. Yeah, I, I agree. We do call ourselves progressive, but when there is an equality in certain ways, but it's not in other areas in life still. Oh, yeah. I, like I, um, I've had young mothers uh, come up to me and um, start general conversation. Oh, what are you looking after the kids for? Is mum having a day off? No, no, I'm it. I look after them all the time. And they look horrified at you. And I heard I had one young mother saying, um, oh, that'd be right. You let your wife do all the hard work when they were young babies and then you took over when they're nice and easy to look after. Oh, that's such uh, a... Yeah, and, and other comments like, um, you know, it's a, it's a woman's job to be raising children and... Yeah, from all, all, all sorts of different, lots of... Interesting yeah. to hear that women have that perspective. I'm quite surprised. Yeah, I, well, I was surprised. <laughs> <laughs> as well as men, you know, um, you can't define a, a demographic uh, that's more prone to that sort of behaviour because it, it, I've had it come from all sorts of different people. But interestingly enough, um, I've been, you know, I had the twins, little babies going through checkouts, um, one, one in my arms, another one on a little, like a sling, one of those baby <laughs> carriers. I've been trying to wheel the trolley up and you know, young, um, really rough looking young, early 20 year old males, and you now they come running up. Oh, mate, let me help you. And they've started unpacking the groceries for me and putting it through. The you get help from some of the most unexpected places. It's really nice to see that, isn't it? Like, a, oh, yeah. It makes it's great. Yeah. And, yeah. And Bankstown, um, like a really multicultural place. And, Sadly, uh, there's certain um, demographics in Bankstown which get bad rap. But honestly, um, uh, a dad, you know, walking around with two little little tiny girls or little babies, uh, people used to go out of their way to help. It was just wonderful, really, really special. That's really good to hear, actually. Because... It is. It is. Yeah. There's there's good. You can find good wherever you look. You just have to find it. And I agree with that, Chris. 
amen to that, I must say. Yeah. <laughs> because I've all the world and I feel the same because in a very, I might be having a very rough day and somebody will do something, act of kindness that will just melt my heart away and everything will be else will be forgotten. And I'll be like, so grateful. Small yeah. act of kindness. And Kavita, I think it's if you open your eyes to see all the beautiful, wonderful things in the world, you'll see them. If you only want to find bad, then that's all you'll ever see. But there, there's lots of good stuff out there. And now I'm getting teary talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I almost feel like it's a soul, soulful talk today. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, not much adventure, more about soul. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love both sides of it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite enjoying, I'm really enjoying this talk, I must say. And, and how do you feel like, like you, because you're so adventurous, Michelle is so adventurous, and uh, you guys have been around the world. How do you feel that you have tried to include that in your kids' life? And in what ways? We've never wanted to push them. Mm -hmm. And we've never wanted to um, go down the path of, look what my kids can do. And my kid was abseiling at this age and my kid was doing this. We've never done that. We have offered it to them and shown it to them. If they've wanted to do it, that's their choice. And luckily they've taken the choice up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, we, we had them oh, camping from a very, very young age. Uh, I um, I forever in debt to Linda, she organised the bushwalk up to Mount Solitary. I think the girls may have been, um, I can't remember if they were just under one or, oh, they might have been 18 months. Yeah, because they were both walking. And because uh, there's very little water up on Mount Solitary, she organised this bushwalk and said that um, the wards are coming along and they're bringing their little little toddlers. And in order to make it happen, everybody had to carry half a litre of water just for the family. <laughs> so all the club members carried, an, it might have been one litre, half a litre or one litre of water, and it was just for the kids and Michelle and I. And, oh, yeah, it was great. It was wonderful. Oh my goodness, we, Michelle and I, we had those backpack baby carriers, the, the big packs you put on your back. And then we, we had to buy extra pockets that go on the front. I remember weighing them up with the kids plus the camping gear that we had on board. We were carrying close to 30 kilos each, which is a heavy pack. Wow. And <laughs> yeah, so we, we hauled it up onto Mount Solitary. So the, yeah, the kids, the, ba the, the twins, um, came out to Mount Solitary and they loved it. They just loved the whole thing of crawling around on the ground and yeah, it was nice. Then how, how do you organize kids to sleep in a campsite like that? But they must be very tiny. Yeah. Um, we just used to um, bundle, well, Michelle, I can't remember how we did that night. 
think um, I know I used to bivy out and I think Michelle stayed in a tent with, with the twins, with the babies. I know we did another bushwalk down, um, down to Blue Gum Forest. And that was another one that Michelle did. And we had three kids this time. So wow. uh, that was another big logistical exercise. We got a third kitty carrier and Linda again, God bless her soul, but we've <laughs> in her debt for this. And Linda, if you ever hear this, I, I never stopped thanking you for it. Um, Kim carried one of the twins. Michelle carried Tan and I carried another one of the twins. And I think we divvied up again a lot of camping gear. And because we had had an extra child, we had to go super lightweight. So there's all the baby stuff, but then the normal stuff that the adults carry, we went super, super lightweight. So I just had a little, uh, I was going to bivy out. So I was sleeping outside the tent and Michelle was going to be inside the tent with the three children. Uh, well, the best laid plans don't go according to plan when you have children. Tarn, <laughs> Tarn didn't want, Tarn or one of the twins didn't want to sleep in the tent. They wanted to sleep with me. So they wanted to come out and they climbed into my sleeping bag. And Kavitha, you can't sleep in a sleeping bag with a little child laying down next to you. So I remember staying awake all night holding this little child, little baby against me, not wanting to fall asleep in case I rolled over onto him in this tiny little sleeping bag. Well, this little baby had a wonderful sleep vivying <laughs> outside. <laughs> What a, what a wonderful story, Chris. Like, I think oh, a lot of people would have given up when I'll do for a while. <laughs> but we kept at it. And, um, yeah, and now they've um, they came away on another bushwalk and carried their own gear. Uh, uh, well, when I say their own gear, their own sleeping bag and um, I can't sleeping bag, mat. Basically... Children are only supposed to carry 20 to 25% of what their body weight is. That's it. That's the magic figure. Mm -hmm. so How old are they? They're 12. And when we did this bushwalk, I think the girls were only about 20 kilos. So that's five kilos. <laughs> <laughs> when the backpack weighs one kilo, there's not much gear. No. <laughs> But look, we did a, um, with Scouts, I took all my adventurers away and the kids came along with us and we did a, uh, we went from, oh, I keep forgetting the name of this pass. Uh, it's the pass out the back of Blackheath. Um, uh, you come down into the Grace Valley, then walk along to Acacia Flat where Blue Gum Forest is. And then you mm -hmm. hike out and went up Govett's Leap um not perry's the name's eluded me it's about about a three hour hike in and no three k in camp a night and then we did 10k up the next day but and that was the first time the kids uh walked the whole distance themselves and carried their own gear 
and Khan would have been six, I think. And yeah, he did really well. But they enjoy it, you know, and they, um, there's something called in the outdoor recreation world and the, like the, the um, outdoor leadership world, they call it value adding. So if you take a bunch of kids away bushwalking, it's not just the act of going from A to B. The value adding is stopping at creeks and jumping in the water holes and jumping off rocks and stopping somewhere else and playing with this and discovering this. So the value adding, uh, we always value add for the kids when we take them away bushwalking. So we always strip off and go for a swim and go jumping around, which is great. Wow. After hearing all this, I wish I was a kid and I could join a scout now. <laughs> you still that can. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Sounds such a fun thing to do. You have a community, people looking after, learning from other role models. Wow. It's pretty good. Um, very um, time-consuming and it tends to be... Uh, almost devouring it'll it'll take a lot of your time up but it's wonderful but, uh, talk to david mason about it he can give you more insight <laughs> yeah no i feel like your life is like very wholesome i really like it like there's so many different aspects to everybody's life i feel but being able to connect to different side of your life your adventures and what you do for kids uh, I feel really overwhelmed, I must say, even though I feel like this is the longest episode I've ever recorded and I still feel like I'm just touching the tip of the iceberg here. <laughs> There's lots of more stories. <laughs> well, I'll be keen to connect with you in future and hopefully talk a bit more, um, Chris. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to talk to you about your experiences and thanks a lot for sharing the uh, the information in beforehand as well because that came really handy for me to be able to ask you certain questions and be able to get some information some insight in your life in some ways uh, i feel like this is going to be a really wonderful episode for our audience to listen to because i remember listening to different podcasts and when people are sharing experiences like what you have shared today I find it very motivating and moving. So thank you so much for sharing it, Chris. I really appreciate that. Oh, you're absolutely more than welcome. And I, I have really enjoyed it. It's um, having somebody ask questions and getting me to talk about this stuff uh, gives me a chance to relive it, to be honest, and relive the emotions as well. Uh, like I must admit, I got a bit teary and a bit emotional talking about Bobby and talking about the twins. Uh, it, it's been a, been a great, great session. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. And I've got a big smile on my face. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'll wrap this episode for now. I'm really looking forward to catching up with you and do some more adventures. And yeah, look, it'd be nice to have an overnight bushwalk somewhere where we can sit around a, a fire and um, have one or two ports and then I really start talking. <laughs> <laughs> I think I need to ask Linda to organise something. She would love that. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs>
my, my twins just roll their eyes and go, oh, here he goes again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're around you now. <laughs> no, but I know they're listening in on the other side of the wall here. <laughs> so much fun just recording your interview i think i'm signed up for any trip you name <laughs> all right done you're on <laughs> um, i better, better let you go kavita <laughs> thank you thank you so much again chris wonderful talking to you today all right good night all the best thank you bye bye Thank you so much for tuning in. That was season two, episode seven. This was a Christmas special episode, guys. Hopefully you enjoy it and have a Merry Christmas and a have very happy new year. Stay tuned till I'm back with the next episode. Goodbye. I made a couple of um, little movies in years gone past and I narrated over the top of it. And, oh, the number of takes that I had to do, you, you think, okay, I'll say this, and you start to think, oh, how did I get that wrong? You have to start again. <laughs> I, I do that for my podcast at the very beginning when you have to say, uh, season this, episode this, and talk to audience. And uh, sometimes like, Cancel, cancel, start again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>